This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is National American Radio. This podcast is brought to you by Complex Data Encoding and Integrated Digital Transference Systems. This is Lala Plaza. That's number 10 Lala Plaza, and this is a microphone that lives there. It's the home of National American Radio. It's also the home of this podcast spacious production office with its brand new ergonomic Scandinavian furniture from Scandinorical in Norway. And it's also also the home of where a long dead radio star was first murdered. But was it? And also, is it? From our studios in New York City at what address? That's right, 10 Lala Plaza. I'm Mason Lane, and this is Cold Case Crime Cuts. It's all about stories. Stories spelt with an I-E. Stories spelt with an E-Y. Stories spelt any which way you want. Stories that sing, or have been sung, in song. Listen out for them. Maybe before you listen to this. They're all stories, and they'll all be heard before we're done here. Stories. Cold Case Crime Cuts is a Soundcast product of NAR, National American Radio. It is produced in collaboration with the Surface to Air Sound Collective and England's Soluble Radio, who know exactly what they did. For the moment, at least, they're still on Pinterest at Soluble under hyphen radio, but their time is running out. Episode 8. Who Killed the Radio Star? In my role as presenter and host of this podcast, I've traveled most of the length and some of the breadth of the nation, and it always seemed like a big, if not so wide, place. Now consider this. Every one of these United States, every single one, has been the location of at least ten crimes. Some of them have been crimed in more than over a hundred times, and yet, despite having the choice of fifty states overflowing with unsolved crimes, perhaps it was inevitable that this series would come full circle and end in the place where the circle was started. Which is right. This place, New York City, Crime Central. You may recall that the first cut of season one of Cold Case Crime Cuts investigated the story of Tony, Rico, and Lola at the Copacabana, a hot bar between Midtown and the Upper East Side. If you don't recall it, listen to it. It's listed as episode one, season one of Cold Case Crime Cuts on the National American Radio app, although the app is no longer available. The Copacabana had become a rundown thrift store next to an inferior podcast studio. Although following the success of our podcast, its owners relaunched it as an even hotter bar, the Cocopaca Banana. Unfortunately, there wasn't much word of mouth for the Cocopaca Banana since nobody wanted that word in their mouth. It closed for the final time a couple of weeks ago. I'm not sure why. The point is that in New York City, everything changes. Nothing stays the same. One thing that has stayed the same is the building outside which I am standing outside of as I speak. Of course, it's changed enormously over the years. Nothing stays the same in New York City. But Lala Plaza has been a broadcasting hub for almost a century of those years. Yet only in one of those years was a distinguished news anchor and radio star found dead inside. His name was James L. Zimmerhorn, and he worked for National American Radio. I didn't kill him. 
It happened before I was born. The only way to understand what and who happened to him, and if that's true, is to go back, both metaphorically in time and literally go back inside, because our studio is in there. These days, the front door of number 10 Lala Plaza isn't a door at all. It's now a highly efficient automatic K3 Uniglide access solution, so we'll replace it in the edit with the sound of an older, more characterful door to suggest my stepping through a portal into the past. See you on the other side. Hi, it's Mason Lane again, in the present. And although this background noise was recorded in the lobby downstairs, it seemed more sensible to record this narration in the Cold Case Crime Cut studio up here on the 23rd floor. The sound of the building's elevator doors is just as underwhelming as the sound of the building's front door, but we've included it in the podcast for door completists. From 1946 until his death in 1953, James L. Zimmerhorn was the owner and operator of arguably the most trusted voice in news. The word arguably is arguable because he was the most trusted voice in news, and there's no need to argue about it. I don't like arguments. As the anchor and executive editor of the NAR Network Evening Bulletin, he broadcast five nights a week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Friday, and the Thursday the previous week, with an average listenership in excess of 15 million although most listeners were believed to be above average. But change was both in the air and on the air, and not just the change of Zimmerhorn from a radio star to a killed radio star. There was a new kid coming to town, a town called Television. Park a pin in that. We'll revisit that kid later. There's a lot we need to unpack here, so let's establish what we now know. Yes? Yes. Now. It's Wednesday, December 23rd, 1953. At 11.20 p.m., just over an hour after he's finished reading the late evening bulletin, Zimmerhorn's body is discovered in a small utility room in this building, number 10, Lala Plaza. Back then, it was number 9, Lala Plaza, but in 2008, number 7, Lala Plaza was split in two, and so numbers 8 through 35, Lala Plaza, had to shift up by one Lala Plaza number. But the number doesn't really matter. It was this building. Zimmerhorn is 48. Certainly a typical age for a man in his late 40s, but a less typical age for a dead one, and his premature dying brings about a premature end to his professional activities. He is dropped by his agent a few weeks later, and he soon sinks into obscurity. The details of his death have remained hidden for decades. How many decades? The details of that have also been hidden for decades, and so even now we're not sure how many decades it's been that the hidden details of his death have been hidden for. Certainly it's years. At the time, there were rumors that Zimmerhorn had been strangled, but the NYPD quietly shot those rumors in the face. The NAR network kept quiet, too, and there were other rumors that they and the NYPD had dirt on each other and had agreed to sweep Zimmerhorn's death under a dirty radio rug. But the NYPD quietly shot and strangled those rumors, just to be sure. A man named Vincent David E. O'Brien was arrested on suspicion of murder, but was released a few weeks later due to a lack of evidence or motive. O'Brien was a frustrated amateur composer and a bad professional violinist, and I'll get to him later, as will you, when you hear me getting to him. Why reopen this particular cold case now, you might be asking, even though I can't hear you. Two reasons. Firstly, this year marks the annual anniversary of Zimmerhorn's death. And secondly, we've used up our entire travel budget for the series. That extra return flight from Pittsburgh for me to look at a book about horses in the New York Public Library in Episode 3 has come back to haunt us like a car crash. 
And thirdly, a newly discovered collection of letters in the NAR archive, or narchive as I'm sure as hell going to call it, is bringing the death of this radio star back to life. This is a cold case about cover-ups, communists, musical thievery, malfunctioning technology, men's tailoring, and a surprising and budget-busting drive upstate. Stick around for that part. It's a case with a question mark hanging over it like an apostrophe. I want to turn that question mark into a period. End of. And I'll start downstairs. I've come down to the Lollapalooza basement to meet Calvin Briefs. He's National American Radio's chief and only archivist. I've also come down to record the sound of his door for completists. Yeah, great. Calvin, uh, hi, it's Mason. Oh, yeah, uh, hi. We meet in what looks like an abandoned studio. Decades ago, it may have been exactly that, only not abandoned. Now it's the narchive, and it's filled floor to floor above with papers, memos, files, tape reels, old recording equipment, and Calvin. And me, Mason Lane. And now I understand the problems with figuring out the facts of this case. It's a messy case, and none of it has been digitized. But although the old studio isn't kitted out with any bespoke acoustic panels from one of our major sponsors, Panels International, we agree to talk here anyway. It has a charm all of its own. James L. Zimmerhorn was a genuine radio star. Maybe he was the last one, or at the very least, certainly one of the first of the last ones. Calvin is a determined yet dusty man. I expect that he will lose his job in the next round of budget cuts, but I've decided not to tell him this. It's kind of irrelevant right now. Zimmerhorn had been a war reporter during the war. Uh, which war? I forget his name, but he wasn't the first one. I know that. And then? And then he ran out of war to report on, so he joined NAR. Indeed, it wasn't. Although it wasn't always called NAR. Indeed, it wasn't. Time for a quick history lesson from McMissy Steeler, director of the National Audiophonic Museum in Manhattan. So, you know, you gotta be clear. Way before it was NAR, before it was National American Radio, it was the wireless broadcasting network. That was back in 1932. Ordinarily, we wouldn't allow this sort of accent anywhere near our microphones, but she's very knowledgeable, so... <sighs> what can you do? But with every merger and every takeover, they changed the name. So the wireless broadcasting network became the Wireless Broadcasting Network of America then the Wireless Broadcasting Network of American Electric, then the Amalgamated Radio Networks of Electric American Wireless, then the Anderson Rubber Tires National Wireless Network of America, then the Anderson Electric Tires Wireless Radio Network, and then it bought out all its competitors and became Radio One. Then it became the American Wireless Radio Company. Then American Combined Networks, American Combined Radio Sound, KISS, KISS America, American Kissing Sound, National American Kissing Sound. Then in 1945, it became National American Radio, NAR. Although some people still just called it the wireless. But radios always had wires in them though, right? Radios had wires inside, yeah. I guess the name wireless will have to remain a mystery. It was called the wireless because... And that's a mystery for another podcast. Perhaps a science one hosted by me, Mason Lane. But what about Zimmerhorn? How did he become the number one news anchor slash radio star? What was it that allowed him to break free of the competition and float to the top as an anchor? Here's the Dusty Calvin briefs again. Yeah, I remember hearing him on the wireless back in 52, around then. In 52? So this is 1952? Uh, 
1952, yeah. Calvin's story checks out. Had he heard Zimmerhorn on the wireless in 1852, Zimmerhorn would have had to have been at least 101 years old when he died, which he wasn't. And that's assuming that he'd been broadcasting as a newborn baby, which he didn't. And that radio had been invented before 1852, which seems unlikely, although there's no way of knowing for sure. I guess that's another mystery to add to my Mysterious Science podcast. But in this case, 1952 seems likely. Back to Calvin. I'd lie awake at night listening to Zimmerhorn on NAR, intently tuning in. How old were you? Young. I was very young. But it didn't stop him coming through. Coming through the door? What did that sound like? No, no, no. no, Through the radio. Oh. Why would your age have stopped him coming through the radio? Oh, well, I was just a kid. I wasn't very good at tuning it. Huh. So what was it about him that made him a radio star? He just had that air of authority. People trusted him, and he did more research than anyone else, and he seemed to get stories before anyone else. It was a time-consuming job, and he took it very seriously. He was a real old-school newsman, you know? I don't want to embarrass him in our interview, but Calvin is wrong to call Zimmerhorn an old-school newsman, because back then the school wasn't old. It was just a school. A school for adults. Adults with jobs as newsmen. And it wasn't even a real school. It was a newsroom. So yeah, he had that cool, calm demeanor. He had everybody's respect. Oh, and he had that great sign-off line, too. Several official protests with eyewitnesses reporting that she remained stranded at the drive-in and branded a fool, and all eyes were on the question of what they'd say Monday at school. Finally tonight in sports, the Cardinals beat the Giants 7-2, to and that's the NAR News on Thursday, June 9, 1949. Do please join me again tomorrow evening, and not before time. Every anchor had a sign-off line. It was like a signature at the end of a bulletin. But Zimmerhorn had the best one. And not before time. <laughs> you know where that came from, right? Uh, no, actually, I don't. But if you tell me now, I can re-record it later as narration. Oh, uh, okay. So, like, now? Uh-huh. Okay. Well, Zimmerman's radio sign-off actually came from an iconic broadcast he made in 1945 as a bravely war-torn war reporter. Zimmerhorn's famous radio sign-off actually came from an iconic broadcast he made in 1945 as a bravely war-torn war reporter. Claims that he had been brought back under cover of darkness and was now neither as angry nor as hungry as his opposite number. And finally, a late-breaking story from Berlin. There are as-yet-unconfirmed reports from a Soviet source that the controversial German Chancellor Adolf Hitler and his now ex-wife Eva Braun have committed suicide. And if you'll forgive this humble reporter saying so, not before time. This is James L. Zimmerhorn, reporting for International Press. Station with Zimmerhorn was the first one, the first American correspondent to report the death of Hitler, and the story made him famous. Not as famous as Hitler, and for different reasons, but famous enough. And it was that last line, that final line, that very human reaction emerging from behind his journalistic poker voice, that turned him into a radio star. So, when Zimmerhorn joined NAR in 46... 1946. Yeah, 1946. He got the anchor job at NAR. So, obviously, that line, and not before time, that became his sign-off. And then there was also that little ident, the NAR news jingle. They'd always play it before and after the bulletin. I remember how it used to go. Ah, yes, the jingle. Calvin may remember it, but most listeners to this podcast won't, because according to our analytics, most of you are age 24 to 47. To be clear, that's just normal 24 to 47, not 1924 to 1947. 
Nobody who listens to this podcast is over 1,900 years old. We have analytics to back that up as well. This is NAR News Bulletin with James L. Zimmerhorn. Good evening. Today in Washington, the Senate voted to overturn the Davis Amendment, banning water in Michigan. The Great Lakes State has been entirely dry since May 1946, when the popular liquid was siphoned off into over 33 million buckets and destroyed by the National Guard. So what? You might say, although, again, you might be saying it, but I can't hear you. It's just a radio jingle. A radio jingle couldn't kill a radio star. But that harmless news jingle quickly became as famous as the radio star and his quotable sign-off. And it became synonymous. You could even say it became closely associated with National American Radio itself. But from whence had it come from? Who'd written it? Nobody in their right mind would care, except perhaps someone who'd moved on from enjoying the sound of doors as a hobby. But as the months and years of Zimmerhorn's starry radio career went round and round like the hands on a calendar, one man may have fallen into a very wrong mind and started caring far too much. And now, 70 years later, or more if you're listening to this now and it's now more, I can reveal new evidence that points to this man, the musical but sociopathic Vincent David E. O'Brien, being horribly guilty of committing the strangling of a radio star. Oh, and remember television? That's involved as well. Adolf Hitler's contribution to the podcast ends here, but I'll return for part two after a short break. What happens when redemption and retribution collide? We really thought we'd be okay. That was all behind us. This was foul. This was depraved. A building reopens. Just bodies everywhere. A nightmare resurfaces. God himself could not account for it. Was it him again? I recognized Diamond. Nobody was safe there. Not with those feathers. A new limited podcast series from National American Radio. Just kept shooting and shooting. I remember seeing the blood soaking into the chairs. Shooting and shooting. What really happened? She lost her mind. It was her last merengue. By those who survived. Rico came back and he just didn't stop. He couldn't stop. It was like he had a death wish. It was the hottest bar. It was hell on earth. That was the new Copa. Coco Paca Banana. The Coco Paca Banana Massacres. Download it now from your podcast provider. NAR was late to the party, and the market was full. That's a line from later. This is the second of multiple parts of Cold Case Crime Cuts from National American Radio, with me, Mason Lane. It's 1953, a few days before Christmas, which is in December. James L. Zimmerhorn, NAR's 48-year-old dead radio star, is discovered killed in a small utility room here in Lala Plaza. He's at the peak of his news anchoring career, his weeknight bulletins broadcast in all directions to millions. People love his signature sign-off phrase and the network news' distinctive jingle, a jingle which, despite it being near Christmas, is entirely unrelated to bells or the festive season in any way. But it's also a jingle that may have resulted in Zimmerhorn's death at the hands of a psychopath. Like all the music on the NAR network, this jingle comes from the station's music department. Mick Mitzi Steeler from the National Audiophonic Museum takes up the story and, again, I'm so sorry that she sounds like this, 
We thought about dubbing a nicer voice over her awful one, but that might have come across as misogynistic. So every network back then had its own music department. They had contract composers and contract arrangers, which are like composers, but cheaper. And they'd write all the themes, the jingles, links, things, items, underscores, or whatever the shows needed. All totally original, and the network owned every note of it. But of course, my dear. It's not really him upstairs now, is it? No. Professor, how could you? What did the ambassador ever do to you? Ha 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 ha! Struggle all you like. No one can hear you. And the Van Clydes will never know the difference. I should never have signed over the deeds to my family's arsenic monopoly. Ha 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 ha! Too late, my dear. It's the Hightower Long Life Delta Tip Walter Jones Show, starring Walter Jones, Aston Expressway, Bonita Monaco, Clifton Suspense, Bill Tuff Jr., Velma Feud, Cowboy Northwest Passage, Marilyn Monroe, the comedic stylings of Peyton Lyle, and yours truly, that's me, Jimmy Pinches. Ha <laughs> ha, good grief, Mrs. Moncrief, don't touch that receiver now. I thank y'all. And following a further round of discussions, the congressman apologized and returned it to its enclosure unharmed. And that's the NAR News on Monday, March 17th, 1952. Do please join me again tomorrow evening. And not before time. We hear that playback, and it seems so long ago. But in the context of the entire history of the world, it actually isn't. That was the NAR music department in the early 1950s. Music business is music usual, you'd think. But Vincent David E. O'Brien, a wannabe composer and shouldn't have been violinist, thought differently and dangerously. This is the man who was spotted inside number now 10, then 9 Lala Plaza on the night of Zimmerhorn's death and was arrested on suspicion of his murder. O'Brien claimed that he'd only gone in very briefly to use the bathroom on his way home from either giving or receiving a violin lesson downtown. Hardly convincing, but it was certainly hardly enough convincing for him to be released. There was no motive and no evidence. But now, thanks to Calvin Briefs down in the Narchive, there is and are both of those. This is a letter dated September 5th, 1946, addressed to the NAR Music Department. Okay, uh, we can get someone, get a voiceover artist to read no, it. No, 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 it's all right, it's all right, I can do it. It says, Dear Sirs, you are taking credit for my second symphony. The item no, no, played... No, no, don't. That's, that's not how this works. Dear Sirs, you are taking credit for my second symphony. The island played before and after Mr. Zimmerhorn's evening bulletin is note for note the same as the opening of my first movement Andante Moderato. You have stolen it, and I ask that you credit my work. Sincerely, Vincent David E. O'Brien. Now, sure, it's kind of a weird letter, and on its own it just seems like the scribbles of some eccentric who thinks he hears his own half-formed musical daubings in someone else's radio jingle. In fact, I'm about to tell Calvin that it wasn't worth schlepping all the way down to the basement for this, when... Yeah, so that was the first one. And the other 1,200. Whoa. Right. 1,201 letters over seven years. And boy, does the tone of the letters escalate, descending into a basement of madness, not unlike the basement in which the letters are now stored. The irony is not lost on me, Mason Lane, and that's why I've expressed it in words. I find that Vincent David E. O'Brien's words, however, become increasingly aggressive and untidy. 
Sirs, you have now been taking credit for my second symphony for two years and three months, and I demand that the NAR music department and Mr. Zimmerhorn publicly acknowledge this theft on air and pay the royalties of using my second symphony. I am instructing my lawyers to sue National American Radio for theft and unpaid royalties. Mr. Zimmerhorn has acted deceitfully, as has the net dealer. Shame on you. James L. Zimmerhorn, who the hell are you to steal my symphony? My work. That jingle belongs to me, and I can prove it as a liar, a traitor, and a communist. His whole career is fake. And nothing that he says is to be trusted. The NAR network is a stain on this great country and must be investigated by the FBI and the FCC combined. It certainly makes for a montage. But the very last letter, dated December 13, 1953, just 10 days before Zimmerhorn's radio star becomes a radio cadaver, is different. It's five pages long, and also five pages wide if you lay out the pages on a table or similar flat surface like a desk or a door taken off its hinges. The handwriting is now almost illegible, all wild and spidery like some kind of wild spider, and the letter contains some very offensive language. I think. Like I say, the handwriting is awful. So you know, and we all know what the game is here, right? I don't know the game you're playing, but I'm on to you, Zimmerhorn, and you, National American Radio. I'm on to you. Taking credit for my second symphony, playing my music, and playing me for a goddamn fool this whole time. I see you, National American Radio, you goddamn commie sons of bitches. I don't think I don't know about your sign-off line. And not before time. Well, that time is now. I remember you were the first one, Zimmerhorn. You were first to report it back in Berlin. Where did you get that? A Soviet source. You said a Soviet source told you about Hitler. That's all you've ever been. All communists. You're all reds. Red-bellied cowards. And you signal to the reds every night with your sign-off and my jingle. My symphony. I know it's a sign to all your commie friends, and I have to stop you, National Communist Radio. You also owe me royalties for using my second symphony. This is the last time. Signed, Vincent David E. O'Brien. Proud American. P.S. I am very much enjoying the Hightower Long Life Filter Tip Walter Jones show on Sunday evenings. Makes me laugh. Now, I'm not a psychiatrist. I would talk to one, but we can't afford to pay any more contributors this series, so it's not possible. But what we have here are 1,201 increasingly loopy letters claiming without any evidence that a radio network's music department has taken credit for part of a second symphony and that their star news anchor is a communist traitor. I'm not a psychiatrist, but I'd say that this is troubling. It suggests a man with dangerously high levels of obsession, delusion, and paper. A man totally detached from reality. I'm not a psychiatrist, but O'Brien's threat about having to stop Zimmerhorn seems like a threat. A threat to go too far and do something he can't rewind. And you can't rewind a murder. I'm Mason Lane, and I'm still in an archive talking to Calvin Briefs. So... NAR just buried this? This room? No, it's the basement. No, they buried these letters. They had all this evidence, like none of it ever happened. Yeah, kind of seems that way. Calvin has done an incredible job unearthing these letters. I remember that he's almost certainly going to lose his actual job any day now, which seems kind of unfair. But the real issue is that I've discovered that National American Radio buried the death of their radio star. But before we can talk about murders and television, let's deal with a couple of loose wires like those found in radios everywhere. Was James L. Zimmerhorn a communist? No, absolutely not. That, that's just nuts. We don't know much about him, though, do we? Tell me about him. Are you going to re-record this as a narration? Definitely not. Okay, right. Well, you're right. We don't know much about Zimmerhorn. He was a very private man. He, he didn't, didn't have, have any, any kids, kids and, and he, he wasn't, wasn't married. married. He, was he was incredibly dedicated, dedicated to his work, and he worked very long hours. hours. 
I mean, really, he was married to his job. Would you say then that he was a news groom? It's not an expression I ever... Uh, no, would you say it for the tape? I'll leave it in. He was a news groom. And not a communist. No! Awesome. But the bigger question here in my script is why? Why did NAR hide the death of their radio star? I promised we'd talk about television, and now we will, because the answer is television. What I want to do is talk to Domo Arigato. She's a media historian and author of the best-selling book, My, What a Tiny Box You Have, How America Hugged the Small Screen. But she asked for a frankly ludicrous contributor's fee that this podcast couldn't have afforded even at the start of the series. So instead, I'll just summarize some information from page 48 of her overrated book, and then we'll go back to Calvin yet again. What a trooper he is. Summary. At the end of 1953, when Zimmerhorn bulletined for the very last time, National American Radio was fewer than a month away from launching a new TV network. This was a big deal. There would be a lot of attention on them, and the last thing the company needed was a murdered newscaster hovering over them like a corpse on an elaborate system of wires and pulleys. Management panic. The NYPD hushed it up for them, and you know, they never even announced Zimmerhorn's death on NAR. Their own radio star. That... that's just an insult. And by hiding O'Brien's 1,201 threatening, ranting letters about uncredited second symphonies and communist conspiracies, there was never any evidence of a motive for a killer of the radio star. No motive for a killer, no conviction. No conviction, no media coverage. No media coverage, the crime gets forgotten. What crime? Exactly. So, what happened to the TV station? It launched in January 54, and it just tanked. Didn't even last a year. Why? Well, television was already ahead of radio by then. NAR was late to the party, and the market was full. It is hard to organize a party in a market. Right. Plus, they didn't have a star newscaster. Why? Because he was dead. Oh, yeah. Also, they didn't change the name properly. They called it National American Radio Television. NART. I mean, what the hell's a NART? I wouldn't watch a NART. Would you? I would NART. It bankrupted the whole company, TV and radio. Nobody bought them out, and it was all gone by, uh, 56. 1956. After that, as a kid, I had to lie awake at night intently tuning in on other stuff. Calvin seems kind of emotional. I guess this company, NAR, must mean the world to him. But they brought it back, and that's good, right? The same name, same building. It's National American Radio again, and we do podcasts now. I'm thinking of starting one about science mysteries or mysterious science. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really a podcast kind of guy. It's not the same. I'm glad Calvin's getting fired. Even without the help of the money-grubbing author, Domo Arigato, we've managed to establish a lot about this case. We know that the network covered up the death of their radio star, and we know why. We know that Vincent David E. O'Brien was in the building when the radio star was killed, and we know that there was a twisted motive for his possible actions. He believed that Zimmerhorn was some sort of communist fanatic, and he was fixated on his jingle, convinced that the NAR music department had somehow stolen it from his second symphony, a symphony that maybe only existed in his own musical head. There are no records of a second or even a first symphony by a Vincent David E. O'Brien. No published records and no records records either, and further, Calvin has found nothing in the archive to suggest that the music department stole their news jingle from anywhere. 
Unfortunately, there are no surviving members of the music department that I could ask onto the podcast for no fee. It's time to confront this radio star's murder dead head on. But the truth is that this case is getting to me. Maybe it's being stuck inside the crime scene of the scene of the crime itself. I need to clear my live head, so I step outside with a microphone and think about taking up smoking. I, I guess this one just feels more personal. James L. Zimmerhorn, you know, he, he was like me. He was a radio star right here in La... Oh, it's too cold. I'm going back inside. I've shared offices and studios and bathrooms with Zimmerhorn, although not at the same time. He was dead long before I walked in through Lollapalooza's front K3 Uniglide access solution. I might have even used the same bathroom as Vincent David E. O'Brien, although I think he was lying about needing to urinate in this building that night. For the record, I have urinated in this building, and also in the bathrooms in this building. So how exactly was Zimmerhorn killed? What state was he in when he was found, apart from New York, which is a state as well as a city? I don't really want to talk to Calvin Briefs again, but he's found something else in an archive that's never made it out of the building, which is fortunate because it's cold out there. He's discovered a picture, a heartbreaking picture. So, that there. Jesus. No, it's Zimmerhorn. A black and white picture of a small, dingy room similar to Calvin's archive, but older and in black and white. Zimmerhorn is on the floor, half buried under piles of tape reels that have been pulled down from the shelves all around him. Much of the tape has unspooled, coiling itself down his throat and around his limbs, as if they had been flailing in some sort of panic for some reason. It's a heartbreaking, haunting tableau, and you can see for yourself how heartbreakingly haunting it is because we put it on our Instagram feed. You might be surprised by just how heartbroken and haunted you feel after looking at it. It's obviously the aftermath of some kind of vicious, frantic fight. A fight that the radio star technically lost in the sense that he lost, but also in the sense that technical equipment appears to be the murder weapon. Vincent David E. O'Brien must have stumbled across Zimmerhorn in this room, started an argument about the credit for his second symphony and or communism, and then choked him with tape, because this looks like a death at the hands and tape of a psychotic musical bastard. But as I look at the picture again, Despite my heart already being significantly broken, I noticed something else. Like I said, Zimmerhorn took radio very serious. He always put on a freshly pressed suit, clean shirt, and a necktie before every broadcast. Now that was classy. Nowadays, when people broadcast, eh, I guess they wear whatever they want. It's true. I'm not wearing a suit at the moment. I do own one, but I left it in Los Angeles during last week's episode. But in this picture, it's Zimmerhorn's necktie that grabs you by the attention. Because underneath all the debris, you can clearly see the radio star's tie caught in the workings of a broadcast-quality videotape recorder. The magnetic tape has unspooled everywhere, the screen is smashed on the floor, and the whole machine has been dragged off the desk and down on top of the struggling newsman. So the VTR was sort of a prototype in 1953. It was totally new technology. McMitzi Steeler, director of the National Audiophonic Museum, and yet apparently completely unable to hear herself. They were hard to operate. My guess is NAR had just installed one because they had the TV network starting up. McMitzi thinks that after Zimmerhorn finishes his bulletin at 10.15 p.m., he decides to spend a bit of quiet time figuring out how to use this VTR, this new technology. After all, he would need to get to the grips with the machine before starting TV news the next month. 
Faced with this picture, McMitzi outlines a new theory, a theory that challenges the previous, better theory. Zimmerhorn doesn't understand the problems of the new technology, so at some point, he accidentally gets his tie trapped in the VTR mechanism as it's playing. And he can't rewind it. His tie goes further and further into the machine. He can't rewind it. It's gone too far. Right. And then he's struggling, pulling at things on the shelves around him, but he gets strangled by the machine. And magnetic tape goes everywhere and he chokes on it. This photo says it's an accident. I put the blame on the VTR. McMitzi seems very sure. This would be an undignified way for anyone to be killed. But for a radio star to be killed like that by a VTR would be even undignifieder. She seems kind of defensive, and I wonder if she's realized that I hate her voice. But it's actually something much more dramatic than that. Really dramatic. Bring your ears in. You think it's an accidental death? Not murder. Yep. I mean, I guess if O'Brien had suddenly come into the room. Uh-uh, no. And then Zimmerhorn turns round in surprise, gets his tie caught in the VTR. No, he had nothing to do with it. He had just gone into Lollapalooza to use the bathroom. No, I know he said that. But there you go. Y- yeah, I'm, 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 I, guess I'm, I guess I'm wondering why you're so sure about that. I know he didn't do it because he's my father. Go ask him yourself. And that is one hell of a double-strength surprise. Not only is McMitzi Steeler Vincent David E. O'Brien's daughter, she's also still his daughter because he's still alive. I just assumed that he would be dead by now like everyone else from the 1950s. But no. McMitzi tells me that Vincent David E. O'Brien is 96 years old and living in a nursing home upstate. That's New York State, and up means north. I have no choice. Even though we definitely can't afford to leave Lala Plaza for this episode, I've got to go talk to this guy. This is a chance to put a factual nail in a dead radio star's cold case coffin. Will the coffin contain an innocent old man, or the gruesome confession of a guilty, deranged old composer? Find out in part three. It's the last of the three parts of this podcast. Hi there, I'm Doma Arigato, and I'm dropping into your podcast feed to let you know that my award-winning book, My, What a Tiny Box You Have, How America Hugged the Small Screen, is now available in paperback and on Crundle, and listeners to Cold Case Crime Cuts can get 10% off by using the promo code MASONLAME. That's 10% off my New York Times number one bestseller with the promo code MASONLAME. Thank you so much for listening. That was the start of James L. Zimmerhorn's final broadcast as a live radio star, 10 p.m. on December 23, 1953. It's an entirely unremarkable bulletin, almost as if he doesn't know that he's going to be killed an hour or so after it finishes. But he was killed, 
almost certainly at the hands of an unstable composer called Vincent David E. O'Brien, who was convinced that National American Radio had not only taken credit for his second symphony, but had also stolen it and used it as a popular jingle, and that Zimmerhorn was a huge communist, which, as the bulletin demonstrates, he wasn't. A private man, yes, but not a private communist. Vincent David E. O'Brien, incredibly, is not dead. At 96 years very old, he's the last surviving major player in this case. Although really, there only ever were two major players, and one of them died 70 years ago, which is what made this case into a case. I'm heading to a nursing home in Schenectady, New York, about three hours north of New York, New York, and I'm in a car. One of us is running on pure adrenaline, and the other is part electric. Please do a U-turn if possible. Since speaking to McMitzi yesterday, I've been thinking, this is a really binary case. There are only three possibilities. Either O'Brien really does go into Lala Plaza just to use a bathroom and has nothing to do with Zimmerhorn accidentally getting his tie caught in a VTR and strangling himself to death, or he goes into Lala Plaza intending to confront someone about stealing his second symphony and wanders into Zimmerhorn's room and somehow causes him to get caught in the machine, get fully strangled and get choked with a magnetic tape. Now that could have been an accident, you, you know, he could have walked into Zimmerhorn's room at random and surprised him. Hell, maybe he was looking for the bathroom, but instead found a radio star. That can happen in Lala Plaza. Or maybe, third option, maybe it was a complete, psychotic, premeditated, big murder of an NAR network news anchor by a frustrated musician. And I guess option four is he killed him- Oh shit, shit, that's a turn, that's a turn, shit! <laughs> My mind is somewhere else. My mind's in my car, of course, with me in my head, but in my mind and in my car, I'm going in different directions. Neither of them is the right direction because I've gone too far and I missed a turnoff. This cold case is now really getting to my mind. I, I feel like I'm falling through a rabbit looking at its hole in a glass. It's at this moment I realize I misspelled Schenectady in the satnav and it's auto-corrected it to Schenectadalus, which is a small upmarket lakeside town 150 miles west of Schenectady. In, in fact, it's not far from Dutchess County, home of the Moonlight Medical Facility from Series 1, Episode 6 of Cold Case Crime Cuts, available wherever you get your podcasts. It's the same episode where I learned a valuable lesson about cheap car rental, which is why I borrowed this car with its unnecessarily complex satnav from a friend. I decide to pull over and phone Vincent David E. O'Brien's nursing home to tell them I'd be late. Hello, hi, it's Mason Lane from the Cold Case Crime Cuts podcast in New York, National American Radio. I'm driving up to see one of your residents, but I'm running a little late. Uh-huh. When do visiting hours end? I'm from a podcast, it's very successful. Who are you coming to see? Vincent David E. O'Brien. I met his children. What did you tell them? Uh, well, it was actually just one child. McMitzi? That's his daughter. I should get there before six, is that okay? I want to ask him if he killed a news anchor in 1953. I think he strangled him to death using a VTR machine he couldn't rewind. Hello? Uh, honey, I'm so sorry. He passed away last night. I'm sorry. Oh. Was he killed? Um, well, he died. Mr. O'Brien passed away. He was 96. Did he confess to any murders? What did you say your name was? Oh. Is there, like, a musical score or something in his room? It, it might say Second Symphony on it. Could you check? Help me out here. No, I... Are you a relative? I don't think so. His relatives have very annoying voices. (sighs) 
96 Years of Breath and that radio star-murdering musical fruitcake couldn't hold on for just one more guilt-filled day. And that's where this cold case comes to a frozen end. Somewhere between Schenectady and Schenatelis, with two dead men separated by 70 years. One, an innocent radio star. The other, a criminal, at least as far as I'm concerned. As I head back south through New York State, this time on the Highway 105, also from Episode 6, because I know the way and I don't trust that sat-nav, I have jingles and death on my mind. I remember that there are no crime-free states, only crime-free people. Maybe then, crime is more than a state of mind, or less than. Could I have done more? Maybe. Could I have done less? No. I guess I could have gone to see Vincent David E. O'Brien as soon as I found out that he was alive, instead of spending an afternoon googling mystery science podcasts to see if there was a gap in the market. There wasn't. You could argue that that was a mistake, but, like I said earlier, there's no need to argue. I don't like arguments. When I get back to the Lala Plaza parking garage, I record the sound of my car door. For completists. It's a good one. I asked McMitzi Steeler Nay O'Brien if we could talk again, but she said she was busy with funeral arrangements. I wanted to thank her for her help, to express my sorrow for her loss, if not her voice. I've decided not to tell her about the 1,201 deranged, threatening letters her father sent to NAR about his probably fictional second symphony. He's dead now, and she thinks he died an innocent man. And that's okay, even though he's absolutely clearly guilty. As for Calvin the Narchivist, he was escorted off the premises a few hours after our last interview, and the contents of his work locker were returned to him by Courier. I thought about interviewing the Courier, but I'm not sure which company he was from. So, who really killed the radio star? You could put the blame on the VTR. You could put the blame on Zimmerhorn for being old school and not being able to rewind his tie. But if my investigation concludes with nothing else, it's this. Vincent David E. O'Brien killed the radio star. And that's a damn shame. But it's not quite a concluding conclusion. Because this radio star deserved better. He deserved better from National American Radio. He deserved better from machines and from new technology. And he deserved much better from his murderer. More than that, though, he deserves to be remembered in some way, here in Lala Plaza. And that's why the Cold Case Crime Cuts team and me, Mason Lane, have commissioned a small memorial plaque for the wall of this great building, next to its modern, disappointing, yet efficient front door. The inscription is simple, yet touching. It reads, James Lennon Zimmerhorn, Radio Star, 1905 to 1953, and not before time. Cold Case Crime Cuts is presented by me, Mason Lane. Our program associates are Lance Fuller, Alexander Metaxa, Jake Yap, Alex Sivright, and Naomi Denny. The writers are John Holmes and Gareth Saradig. The composer was not Vincent David E. O'Brien, but Jake Yap, who no longer wishes to engage with the premise. Album artwork by Simon Fowler. Associate associate is Cliff Pathmanathan. Our engineers are Tony Chernside and Louis Blatherwick. Executive modeling by Jeff Posner and David Tyler. Cold Case Crime Cuts is produced and directed by John Holmes. J.D. Traphazard was the executive producer of this episode, and the conditional executive producers were fully briefed and prepared. The front doors to our building are by Uniglide Access Solutions. Acoustic paneling throughout the series was provided by Panels International. Thanks to Unusual Productions and Audi. 
Cold Case Crime Cuts is rounded off at the studios of National American Radio at 10 and or 9 Lala Plaza, New York City, and is a proud member of the Surface to Air Sound Collective. We're sad to report that Soluble Radio is now insolvent. Book your tickets now for our live shows in Schenectady, New York on August 24th and Schenectady, New York on August 24th. Our website is temporarily down. This episode is dedicated to the memory of McMitzi Steeler, who was driving home from a funeral when her car collided with a former radio archivist. Although the archivist also died, this episode is not dedicated to his memory. He didn't like podcasts. 